The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. If you would take your Bible, we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, the text that just played for you on the screen. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there's one under a chair, either directly under you or close by. We're on page 856 in the chair Bible. Before I get into the message at length, I just uh, first want to footnote Pastor Chad uh, as a result of a class that he had at Southern over the summer. Uh, he was exposed to uh, some teaching uh, as, as it related to the Psalms and related to Luke's gospel. And Pastor Chad was the first to introduce me to the real thoughts that went behind this message of how heavily the Psalms influence Mary's song here, or it's called the Magnificat, which is in Latin means glorifies. The other thing I need to say, so if you ever read it and you think uh, I cheated, uh, J.C. Ryle's sermon outline of this text heavily influenced me and how I approached this sermon. Before I read the text, I, I want to share with you uh, what transpired this week. The Washington Post ran an article about this text of Scripture. It was written by a lady named D.L. Mayfield. Uh, I did a little research on her. She's a fairly extensive writer. She has a Bible college background. She grew up in the home of a pastor. She gives herself to ministering to the poor. Uh, that is her ministry over on the West Coast. She points out several things uh, as she worked through an explanation of this. And I want to first say she's very knowledgeable of the Bible. I agree with her on her first overarching point that Mary's song is often overlooked as it relates to talking about the Christmas story or the Christmas account in the Gospels. And if it's mentioned, only the first few verses are mentioned. Again, I agree with her. From that point, <laughs> our disagreement begins. She says things like, quote, I was shocked to discover that Mary wasn't quiet, nor was she what I would call meek or mild. Here, Mary comes across less like a scared and obedient 15-year-old and more like a rebel intent on reorienting unjust systems. She's a young woman singing a song about toppling rulers from their thrones. Then she cites a Latin American artist who did a picture of Mary with her fist raised as she sang this song. Then she says, I loved this Mary. Where has she been all my life? I'm going to offer a warning before I get into this text as I would the entire Bible. Every one of you in this room, including me, run the risk and the temptation of interpreting the Bible the way we would love to have it interpreted. The way we would want it to speak, what we would want the Bible to say. And let me press even further. The Bible is being abused politically across the American landscape and conservatives are extremely guilty. So this is not just from a left perspective as to how you would view the scripture. Some want to interpret Luke 1 and much of the Bible, and you could even say all of the Bible like this young woman. 
What she has embraced is liberation theology, that Jesus came to set the oppressed free, the poor and the disenfranchised, the people who have been held down. This is rampant in Latin America and in parts of Africa as well. It's not really that prevalent except in halls of academia uh, in the United States. So you're not in danger of what she's embracing, but here's what you are in danger of. You're in danger of only wanting the Hallmark version of the Christmas account. Some sweet little picture of a quiet little pretty place and the birth of a baby. In fact, I've had people come up to me after a service around Christmas, particularly Christmas Eve, and say, why are you talking about the cross? This is about the birth of Jesus. My response to you is, you don't really understand the story of the Bible if that's your concern. We don't treat the Bible as isolated stories. The Bible is one big comprehensive story. And what I want to show you today is that's what Mary's doing in this song. So I want you to imagine with me that we all got a camera and we got a big old lens on it. And this lens allows us to do th two things, to zoom in and to pan out. So we're going to zoom in on what Mary says, and then we're going to pan out to the rest of the Bible. And I'm going to do it quickly, and you're going to have to adjust on your own. I don't have the time for us to turn to every one of these texts. But what I want you to see today with me as I move through Luke chapter one is that the song of salvation is the song of scripture. I want you to stand as I read the word of God. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So as I said, the first thing we want to see, this is the biggest, longest point of the message, is that the song of salvation is the song of scripture. That what Mary really is doing here is summarizing what the whole Bible is telling us. That's really what the Psalms do. The Psalms are summarizing the message of the Bible. They're summarizing the song. It's to be put into words so it's to remember. Now get this in your mind. You need to grasp this. This young woman is, is somewhere between the ages of 13 and 16 or 17. Let's just say she's 15. She's uneducated. She cannot read. She's poor, extremely poor. She, she's, she's going to give birth to this child in a barn. But she knows the Bible. And you would say, how? How does she know the Bible? 
I've said this before. God's going to hold us accountable that we have a copy in our hands personally that we can read. The way people who cannot read have learned their Bible is through song and memorization. Mary had the song of the Bible in her ear and in her heart. And what you see her doing here is weaving together multiple passages of scripture and multiple psalms into one song. So as we move through it, I want you to see first that it is God-centered and scripture-saturated. It's very similar to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. What you want to see right away and what you want to see entirely the way through is that the Lord God is the focal point of the entire song. He is the subject of every verb except for two. The song is about the Lord. It's not about Mary. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So right away we hear the words of Psalm 34. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Anyone familiar with the Psalter would have heard her saying, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, would have heard Psalm 34, would have heard Mary saying, join me in this song. This is not just my song. This is the song of salvation. Let us exalt his name together. The song of salvation is offered from humbled and thankful hearts. There's no pride in this woman. In fact, she's She's, she's laying out here that God is opposed to the proud. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty, not Mary, he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. So when Mary says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, this is not a mandate to venerate Mary or to worship Mary. Instead, she's pointing to the Lord God who has poured out his particular grace on her and declares that God is holy and merciful and that he pours out grace on all from generation to generation. So what God has done for Mary is an expression of God's mercy on the people. Look in chapter two, verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you great news, good news of great joy that will be for all the people, not just for the Jew. She's pointing to us, to a holy and merciful God who is to be worshiped. And in her mind, in her heart, the influence of Psalm 111 verse nine rings true. He sent redemption to his people he has commanded his covenant forever, which elicits this response. Holy and awesome is his name. Why? Verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Throughout the Psalms, we've seen the word hesed or steadfast love. God's steadfast love is unceasing toward his people. His mercy is unceasing. It is from generation to 
to generation. Psalm 89, verse one, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. So, The psalmist is saying as far back as you can look, you see God's covenant, God's promise. And as far forward as you can see, you see God's promise. And you see Mary singing the same thing. His mercy is from generation to generation. Next, you want to see that the song of salvation recognizes grace and judgment. Now, this is where where moderns are getting off the train. We, We want the birth of Jesus, but we don't want the cross of Jesus. We want to think about these nice little hallmark scenes and we don't want to think about the judgment that transpires at the cross. Mary brings both to light. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now she's speaking to the past. This is what he's done. And she's saying, this is what he's going to do. The arm of God is is symbolic in scripture of his sovereign power. In other words, God can do whatever he decides to do and nothing can stop him. Now what comes to mind when you hear her say, he has shown strength with his arm, you go back to Exodus, but we'll read it from Deuteronomy, the account. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. With great deeds of terror and signs and wonders. The psalmist picks this up in Psalm 136 and says, and brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever with a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever. So what's this a reference to? It's a reference to God setting free his oppressed people from Egypt. He brings them out to the edge of the Red Sea. They think they're gonna die because Pharaoh's army is charging up on them and God shows his mighty arm and he parts the Red Sea and his people walk through, then he releases the water and it collapses on the world's most powerful army at the time and destroys it in an instant. So what's Mary saying here? She's saying a new exodus has dawned. And it's dawned in an unexpected way through the incarnate son of God whom she will give birth to who by his sovereign hand will defeat sin and death on the cross and through the power of the resurrection. Here's what the Bible teaches. God scatters the proud. God God deals with the self-sufficient. The proud look down on others, but ultimately the proud do not look to God. So in the Bible, The proud are constantly presented as God's enemies. Now, as I continue with this, because we're going to expand this further, we have to to consider how the word kingdom and king and Lord. So 
if, if, if my hand turned upright represents the kingdoms of the world. So I'm listening this week. I mean, folks, everybody like the Cold War's over, everything's over. We're still, it's, it's down to three superpowers. And, and all this jockeying that's going on right now is between the U.S., Russia, and China. Right now, we're the three superpowers. 100 years from now, it's probably going to be somebody else. And it's all about showing your power and your might and who can be the most powerful nation. Now, here's how God does it this way. His kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It doesn't work the way the kingdoms of the world work. It says... He brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. God teaches this through Job. He, he, Job 5, he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to, sa- to safety. God exalts the humble who fear God. He fills the hungry who look to God to supply their need. To be mighty is to be self-sufficient, to say, I I don't have any need of salvation. God raises the lowly, but the mighty do not recognize their lowliness because they desire to raise themselves. Now, this spirit of self-exaltation is all throughout Luke's gospel. Luke is showing how opposed the kingdom of God is to that. The clearest story is the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee stands in his pride and says, God, I think I'm not like him. And the tax collector beats his breast and says, woe is me, I'm a sinner. You see in 1 Peter that God says he's opposed to the proud, but he exalts the humble. Mary says in verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Miss Mayfield and her concern for the poor, and I applaud what she does and others like her. But to interpret here that the only reason Jesus came is to feed people who are hungry is to misread and misunderstand the Bible. You got to interpret the Bible with the Bible. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be what? Filled. Whether whether you want to admit it or not, all of you have a spiritual hunger. The issue is how you try to fill that hunger. How how you try to appease it. Everything's junk food but Jesus. All of it. None of it will satisfy you. But the hungry soul, this is Psalm 107 verse 9, the hungry soul he fills with good things. It is God who satisfies the longing of your soul. Now, let's just step back here for a second. Think about what's being said and draw a comparison in an age where where this statement is made all the time ad nauseum. All religions are the same. No, they're not. Here's the distinction of Christianity. All the religions of the world teach this basic principle at the bottom. If there's a God, not all religions have a God. See, some of them don't need any God because people are gods on their own. But the religions who have gods, apart from Christianity, here's what they teach. God's up here and you're down here. It's your job to get to God. You've got to find your way to him. 
Yeah, you're a dirty, rotten, they'll agree, most religions agree, you're a sinner. But what you got to do is overcome your sin and make yourself a saint so you can get to God. What the Magnificat does, what this song does, is it reverses this. God, who is on high, becomes low. God sees human need and initiates the revolution that reorders all of reality. The transcendent God intercedes on behalf of a lowly young woman, calls her blessed, and the Almighty gives mercy to those who fear him. He scatters the strong, the proud, the rich, and fills the hungry and needy with good things. I want you to think about this for a minute with me. At this point in history, what is the most powerful regime in the world when Mary writes this? Who is it? Rome. And Christ comes. And Rome and its minions try to get rid of him more than one time. And they fail. Why? Because he sends the rich away empty. It is God who accomplishes all these good things. Why? Last point. The song of salvation remembers the Lord's unfailing promise. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. The psalmist in Psalm 98 says he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel and all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Mary says, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She's recalling Genesis 17, seven. And I will establish my covenant. This is God speaking to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, singular, not plural, singular. And to your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And if you look closely in the Greek, in Verse 55, his offspring is singular. It is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised one who was to come from the lineage of Abraham, specifically through the lineage of David. So God's covenant is a reminder that his mercy will extend not only to the generation of Abraham, but to all generations and to all peoples, not just to the Jewish peoples. The incarnation of Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise. He is the offspring. So right in this moment, we're seeing the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. For to us, a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And here's what Mary's song says. This is the testimony of the Bible. God has done it. He has done what he has promised. And that leads us to the second point. That the song of salvation is the song of the redeemed. I go back to verse 47, 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For those of you new to the church, sometimes people overstudy their Bible and they argue about stuff they ought not to argue about. This is a song, and what you have is a parallel verse. 
the word soul and spirit are speaking of the same thing. The innermost part of a human being. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, why is this significant? In Luke chapter 1, well, let me back up for a second. When we think of our inner being, Americans think about what's in between their ears because we're too smart for our own good. Sometimes we talk about the heart and we think that means right here. When you read the Bible and particularly the Old Testament, a Jewish person, when they talked about their soul, they meant right here. Their gut. Now think of some things that happened here in Luke 1. Mary comes to Elizabeth and she tells her what's transpired. And what does it say? That John through the power of the Spirit, leapt in her womb. Then you have this woman who knows and that she's carrying the Son of God. Says, my soul, my inner being magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So here's what she's doing, friends. From deep within herself, Mary magnifies the Lord by declaring her need and her trust that God is her Savior. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. In her humble state, she is acknowledging her need of a Savior. In no way does Mary hint in this song that she's sinless. On the contrary, Mary uses language of someone, excuse me, who has been taught by God's grace to tell of their sins. She certainly does not believe she could save others. Here's what Mary believes, that she requires a savior for her own soul. Savior means deliverer, to deliver those who are in need of salvation. Significant. Luke only uses the word Savior two times in the entire gospel. One is right here. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The second time is in chapter 2, verse 11, when he says, For unto you, he's quoting the angels, for unto you, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. All right. If you're not stunned enough that Mary is saying, I need a Savior, the second thing Mary is saying is this. God is in my womb. When we talk about the conversation as it circulates to life, then when does life begin? The question is, when did the incarnate son become human? 
The answer is in the womb, not at birth. This is stunning to me. I I can't even bring words to describe what we're reading here. That this little peasant girl, by the revelation of God, understands that she's the one spoken of in Isaiah. She's the virgin who will bear a child. She herself needs this Savior and that within her is the Son of God. She will give birth to him. They'll have to run for their life right away. Herod will try to kill him. Over and over again throughout his life and ministry, he'll have to flee. But then the time will come and he will set his face toward Jerusalem. And he will repeat to his disciples over and over again that the Son of Man must go. He must be handed over to the rulers, to the powers that be. And they're going to beat me. They're going to crucify me. And they're going to kill me. And on the third day, I will rise from the grave. Jesus became lowly for you and I, brothers and sisters, for us. He bore our sin in our place, but don't you miss this. It may be hard to see that he was God in the womb, but it's real easy to see that he was God in the tomb because he rose from the grave. Now, unlike a very famous pastor who last Sunday said, All you need to worry about is the cross and the resurrection. Don't worry about the details around his birth. You better worry about the details around his birth. He had to be God. If he was not God, he could not save us. He had to be man or he could not die in our place. Mary saw it. And Mary sang the song of salvation. And it is the song of heaven. And it is the song that we will sing In Revelation, it says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. Not just from Israel, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And look at this, they shall reign on the earth. Because when he comes back, it's king of kings and lord of lords. And he will set up his kingdom that will last forever and forever. So I ask you, am I joining the redeemed in the song of salvation? Psalm 40 is a psalm I discovered shortly after I became a Christian. It is very dear to my heart. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and he heard my cry and he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure and he made a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God and many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Well, I can promise you this, I'll never sing in the quartet. Blessed that those men could sing that way. Praise God but I don't have to be able to carry a tune in a bucket 
to sing the song of the redeemed. I don't even know what a key is except something you open your house with. That's all I know. But I do know this. The song of the redeemed has been put in my heart. The song of the redeemed is the new song. So when you see the Bible say the new song, it's the song of those who have been redeemed. Wednesday night, I was over with the students and I was standing in the back of the room while they were singing and I was looking around. Same thing happened in here in this service. There were kids not singing. And you know, I could have been a mean adult when I said, you can sing. What is wrong with you? Quit going to the bathroom. Here's what I did. I stood in the back and I said, God, put the song in his heart. God, put the song in her heart. God, please put the song in her heart. Put the song in his heart. I stopped getting mad at you a long time ago for not singing. I just started praying, God, put the song in his heart. After the last service, a young man in his 20s came up to me. Tears in his eyes. He says, the first time in my life I've ever sung. I said, it won't be your last, brother. It won't be your last. When God puts the song in you, it is the song of the redeemed that we sing and we keep on singing. So what does it mean to be redeemed? It means this. It means to confess with Mary that you need a savior. To confess that you cannot save yourself. To think otherwise is to understand God is against you. He is opposed to the proud. Gives grace to the humble, to those who willingly admit their sin and their need of a Savior and who repent of their sin and turn to Christ and cry out to him for salvation. Don't you think it's interesting that the only holiday that we celebrate in the United States that's associated with singing is Christmas? Why is that? It's because it's when the redeemed sing. But bless what we've done to the songs. If I hear some of these songs again before Tuesday, I'm going to explode. But why have we stopped singing some of the old songs? You know why? It's because the message of those songs is the song of salvation. And our culture doesn't want that song. Why? Because it's very proud. May God break your heart of pride. May he break your heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in you that you might sing the song. Let's pray. Lord, I plead now. I plead for the redeemed. For those who know you, that they would join Mary in singing. And for those, God, who do not know you, I pray that you would bring an awareness of their sin, an awareness of their need for Christ, the awareness of the need of Christmas and may they repent of their sin and turn to Christ today. Lord, lead now as we worship you and as we glorify you. May you be honored in this place as our souls magnify the Lord. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. 
That's parkwoodonline.org.